The Michigan DNR Hunt Fish app is your digital connection to all things hunting and fishing in Michigan. Buy, store, and display your hunting and fishing licenses, check your points and chances for elk and bear, apply for the draw, and view drawing results. Access all the hunting and fishing regulations, view your hunter safety certificate, and report your harvest, all from within the Michigan DNR Hunt Fish app. Just click the app banner at the top of the page for download instructions at michigan.gov hunting. You know what that sound means. It's time for the Michigan DNR's Wild Talk Podcast. Welcome to the Wild Talk Podcast, where representatives from the DNR's Wildlife Division chew the fat and shoot the scat about all things habitat, feathers, and fur. With insights, interviews, and your questions answered on the air, you'll get a better picture of what's happening in the world of wildlife here in the great state of Michigan. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June episode of the Wild Talk podcast. This is your host, Rachel Leitner. I hope your summer is off to a great start so far and that you've been getting plenty of time in the outdoors. In today's episode, we'll be returning our attention to a creature that may be small in size, but can carry a big impact, and that is the tick. Pulled from the vault is our Ticks, Ticks, Ticks episode with Dr. Gene Sow, Dr. Megan Porter, and Dr. Dan O'Brien. We love recording this episode and learning more about the eerie world of one of nature's most peculiar creatures, and we hope that you will love it too. Later, stick around for your chance to win a Wild Talk podcast camp mug. But first, let's hear a word about our forests. Trees provide for the well-being of our state. That's why we work so hard to keep our forests healthy and abundant. So wildlife has a home. And so do people. So that there's clean air and water for everyone. And so Michigan's economy can be as strong as the trees that support it. Because every branch of forestry ensures that future generations will always have a tree for life. And forests for a lifetime. To learn how sustainable forestry benefits your life, visit michigan.gov slash forests for a lifetime. So today here in studio, we have Dr. Dan O'Brien of the DNR Wildlife Disease Lab and Dr. Jean Sow of, she is an associate professor of the Fisheries and Wildlife Department over at Michigan State University. And we have Dr. Megan Porter, a graduate student also at Michigan State University. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having us. So today we're talking about ticks. And we are finding more and more lately with our, our phone calls and emails that we get into our department, people are looking for tick-related information um, and have concerns about ticks. And growing up, I don't really remember ticks being much of an issue in Michigan. It seems like, you know, things are changing. Has something changed or was I just unaware of the tick situation <laughs> when I was younger? So, Holly, I think the situation is changing, and um, this is largely due to the fact that the black-legged tick, also known as the deer tick, which is the vector for the Lyme disease pathogen, has been increasing in um, in its abundance and in its spatial um, distribution within Michigan. And that's not unlike um, other places in the U.S., but in Michigan, actually, um, there have been many tick species here already, but the most prevalent one is the American dog tick. And that's been around, and it's been around in the Upper Peninsula and in the Lower Peninsula. But in the late or mid-80s, 1980s, um, the black-legged tick was first discovered 
in Menominee County in the UP. And then since that time, it's been spreading somewhat in the UP. But then sometime in the early 2000s, it was detected, the same tick, in southwestern Michigan. And then over that time, it's just been spreading. It may have been here in low numbers uh, before in the Lower Peninsula um, in the late 90s or in early 2000s, but certainly something then changed and its abundance just grew. And we first saw it really kind of as far as ticks go, racing <laughs> up <laughs> the lake shore, Lake Michigan in those coastal dune forests. And um, students in my lab had studied um, beginning in 2004, and actually some um, Eric Foster, who was at the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, actually he started studying this with uh, Ned Walker and other folks at the Michigan DNR, including Steve Schmidt at the time, who was the state veterinarian at the time. They had looked at black-legged ticks um, on hunter-harvested deer in the early 2000s, and they saw that there were some more ticks in southwestern Michigan. And then when my student Sarah Hamer came, um, she was working with uh, Dr. Graham Hickling, who used to be here with me also. And we saw the tick progressing up the Lake Michigan um, lakeshore, uh, up to uh, from southwest Michigan up to Sleeping Bear Dunes in the matter of, um, I would say, six, seven years. Wow. And the numbers just, you know, have increased. And now, um, certainly, the, the ticks um, have spread inland a bit, and Lansing is a little bit of a hotbed um, in certain areas for the, for the black-legged tick. And they've actually reached over to the Lake Huron shoreline. Hmm. But the distribution's still patchy. So some areas in the state, we still have a very hard time finding the black-legged tick. But in other areas, um, I think a lot of people, including yourself, have been noticing more ticks. And then on top of that, unfortunately, um, not as much has been studied really carefully looking at the changes in the dog tick, American dog tick, numbers, but from what I understand, talking to people like Dan O'Brien and um, and others who spend lots of time outdoors, it seems that the dog tick has been increasing in abundance as well. Um, so even though it's widespread, the numbers seem to be increasing more. That's the one I see most often. And you had it <laughs> when I find when a tick on up. me, That's it's right. usually a dog tick. <laughs> so yeah. well, you've talked a little bit about black-legged ticks and the dog tick. Can you explain maybe the differences between those and any other tick species that might be found here in Michigan? Yeah, well, here in Michigan, as you were just saying, the American dog tick is well, the most commonly found tick um, by people and their companion animals. And uh, we know that from data that of tick submissions to the state health department, as well as my graduate student has been um, looking at pictures uh, received by the public through the tick app, and then also in her work looking at uh, uh, ticks that are uh, presented on dogs from veterinarians. And so the American dog tick is the most prevalent, then it's the black-legged tick, and then from time to time we also get um, on dogs and people this tick called the woodchuck tick, which is in the same family as the black-legged tick, and then there are a few others that are much less commonly run into by people and companion animals. Um, the differences are, well, visually they look different, but also um, they are different because they, from a human health standpoint, 
and animal health standpoint, they transmit different pathogens. And so the American dog tick uh, transmits the, is most well known for transmitting the Rocky Mountain spotted fever and other bacteria in the spotted fever group, and uh, which can, um, they can cause people to uh, feel like they have the flu and such, and Rocky Mountain spotted fever can be fatal. However, those pathogens are at much lower prevalence amongst the tick population. So we rarely hear about people in Michigan uh, contracting rock, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, although it happens every few years. And then we hear, you know, some press releases to remind people that beware of this. You still have to be aware of this tick causing problems, even though many of us have picked them off you know, of us in the field. The American dog tick in our areas up here in the Midwest is often known as the wood tick. So that's very important to get across. These are the two two names for the same species. Um, and um, I should say as a visual, I heard this from someone, I thought it was great that the um, usually there are these larger brown ticks, but the female adult tick, and they come in male and female forms, um, she has this little creamy coloring that sometimes people call a necklace on her top side. And then the males, however, have more of this, uh, they have a coloration pattern that extends their whole body. Some people call it looking like more like golden, like pinstripes. So a little way to hmm. differentiate the male and female yes, dog tick. Yes. and pinstripes. That's right. I'm or really suspenders. Nice. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so then the black legged tick, or also AKA, its other name is the deer tick, is the one that transmits the Lyme disease pathogen, Borrelia burgdorferi. And there um, are multiple stages that people can encounter, the adult stage. Uh, and so uh, the female tick, she has this red covering. Uh, her, her body looks mostly red and she has a little black shield. And then the male is just pretty much all dark brown, black. And then you, and they are the size, they say the male is like the size of a sesame seed and the female is a little larger. And then the nymphal stage, or we call the teenage stage, is pretty much the size of a poppy seed. And so uh, people that's may... tiny. <laughs> yes, a little poppy seed with legs, eight legs, and um, more dark coloring. And then the larval stage, people hardly ever see. People might call them seed ticks if they come across them and a whole bunch come on them. But those are little, uh, they have six legs and they're even smaller. So, so you've talked a little bit about some of the the human health risks that are associated with ticks. Let's dive a little deeper into the, the Lyme disease concern with black-legged ticks. And there is a connection, right, with um, deer and mice and black-legged ticks. What is that connection and what is that relationship there? So the black-legged tick has four life stages. It's got the egg stage. Then it's got the larval stage, which has six legs, the nymphs, which have eight legs, and then the adults, which come morphologically, you could actually see males and females, right? So ticks are obligate parasites. They have to get a blood meal at every stage. So the larva is going to be looking for a host. And these ticks also, they don't run after anyone and they don't fly um, and they don't drop from trees. They don't drop out of trees on <laughs> right. people's heads either. <laughs> That's right. And so they, um, the mom lays the eggs in one clutch, something like 500 to 2,000 eggs at one time. Then the larvae 
emerge, they hatch out of their eggs, and they are hungry and they're looking for a host. So they will wave their front pair of legs in this term we call questing, questing for a host. And because ticks don't have antennae, but they have little organs at the tip of their front pair of legs, right under their claws, and they wave them in the air and they sense things like heat, passage of light, maybe some carbon dioxide that hosts might emanate. And then so when a host comes by, um, they will, they also feel vibrations, you know, and such, and they may attach. So then they'll attach to a host and there can be many different species of hosts that larvae feed on. People have counted maybe 100, 150. It depends. They're very, they're generalist ticks, uh, uh, parasites. So they will feed on small mammals, mice, voles, shrews. They'll feed on birds and eat that forage on the ground. So robins, uh, catbirds. Oven um, birds. Oven birds, yes. And... Uh, and if and in certain places, if they exist, they will feed on lizards as well. So I actually we saw a great picture from one of our summer workers from Port Crescent State Park that was of a of a five line skink. So they will feed on five line skinks. They love skinks, and um, they will then definitely feed on medium sized and large sized mammals. So raccoons, possums, skunks, squirrels, and then white tailed deer. Um, as well as uh, bear, etc. So the larvae can feed on all of these, but they tend to feed mostly on probably the small mammals, in part because the small mammals are so um, numerous and in their habitat running around um, in our woods here. Just more likely, basically, that they'll run into a rodent than yes. a lot of other things. Right. And then what happens is they take their blood meal, uh, they're on the host for about three, four days, takes them that long to suck enough blood to be fully engorged and larvae are born without the infection. So at that point, if the host is infected, they will suck in the pathogens, right? These spirochetes that cause Lyme disease. Then what will happen is when these larvae, when they finish feeding, they'll detach from the host, drop into the leaf litter, and they will undergo development and molt into the nymphal stage. So they'll grow another pair of legs. They'll be a little bigger. And if they were infected in their larval blood meal, they will then be infected as unfed nymphs, hungry to get on another host. And, and then when a host passed by, and again, very sim, all the same types of hosts, they, these nymphs would be feeding on just like they had as larvae. Then um, if it's a host species that actually can get infected with the Lyme disease pathogen, because not all hosts can, then the nymph will transmit that pathogen to the host. And then that host will become infected and be able to pass it back to any other larvae or nymphs that feed on it. If the nymph then, uh, let's say, so after it finishes feeding, it's infected, it drops into the leaf litter to molt into the adult. When it comes out as a male or female, it will be infected. But the female and the male, what happens next, right? So they need a blood meal, but they also need to find each other and mate. That's the job of the adult tick. And, um, and so what they do, again, unlike mosquitoes, they don't uh, fly around and they don't do massive migrations to find a host uh, and find each other. What happens is they just wait and they queue to a large host. And in our ecosystems, the most abundant large host is the white-tailed deer. And so when they do that, um, they get on a host, then they're actually able to get their blood meal, and they're probably going to be likely to find their mate. 
So I often say in my classes, it's just like when people want to find each other to, you know, a partner or spouse, instead of going out just randomly, they go to a bar. Something like that, coffee shop bar, whatever is your. Right, so the deer is like a tick bar. <laughs> exactly, and for <laughs> and for audiences who might remember, I think of it as like a tick love boat. There you go. Right, and it's cruising around <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> right, and then but the thing is, in terms of infection, the deer aren't competent hosts. They cannot be hosts for the pathogen. I should say they're great hosts for the. Uh, for the adult ticks and the female takes the large blood meal and once she's made it then she's able to drop off and then lay her eggs but in terms of and then she dies unfortunately but um but then um the deer does not become infected so it can't ever transmit this pathogen to any other subsequently feeding ticks but also what happens then it's um it's then the whole life cycle of the pathogen comes to a screeching halt because the female does not pass her pathogen on, you know, the Lyme disease spirochetes onto the baby ticks. So that's why when the baby ticks are born, they're uninfected. So ticks don't transmit the pathogen onto future generations of ticks, and the hosts don't pass on the infection to their progeny. And so it has to be this tag team dynamic. Right, which is kind of interesting to me because, yeah. the you know, they even have the name, the deer ticks. So, I mean, a lot right. of people think that deer play a big role in transmission of Lyme disease. But essentially what you're saying is that other than just being a sort of meeting place for the ticks and a place for them to get a blood meal, they don't, they actually cut off the infection rather than act as a source of Lyme disease for more ticks. That's right. And so actually you see in some areas, they've seen some research in Sweden and others, uh, the more ticks you have, I'm sorry, the more deer you have, the lower the proportion of ticks that are infected. Which is really interesting because I think most uh, most of our listeners will think the opposite. You know, again, because the tick is called a deer tick, people think where you have really abundant populations of white-tailed deer, you're going to have a lot of Lyme disease, but that isn't necessarily the case. But <laughs> what happens but, is when you have more deer, you have more ticks. Sure. So proportionately, they're less infected. But number-wise, you may have more infected ticks. Uh, so then your listeners might be, they might say, ah, yes. maybe I was right. <laughs> there, <you go. laughs> there would be yeah. more infected ticks. So, but, you know, the relationship is a little more complex sure. than that. So you can't always predict how much Lyme disease um, in the tick population there will be just based on the deer population. But there are other hosts out there that vary in how well they can host the tick and the pathogen. So... The host community of wildlife really plays a strong role, a large role in contributing to the how much, how many, uh, what proportion of ticks are infected in a given area. So, so Gene, you you spoke earlier about the the emergence of uh, ticks along the west coast of Michigan from where they were, say, twenty to thirty years ago. So, I mean, what's the transport mechanism? Is it movements of these ticks on deer? So, I mean, are the deer transport hosts or do they move on birds or both yeah both and so the ticks again they can't fly they don't they crawl limited distance and so all of their dispersal is based on the uh, the hosts they feed so on the on the backs of furry hosts you know scaly hosts or on the feathers of you know winged animals 
um, the, the actual spread of the coast in the manner that it did, which was very gradual and it seemed um, very much continuous, that suggests to me that most of the spread was probably just by one community of hosts um, each year, just kind of spreading their ticks, uh, moving them up northwards um, in their normal dispersal patterns. Sure. So, you know, every host population, every animal population, once it has their babies, um, babies usually have to, as juveniles, disperse somewhat um, because there aren't enough resources, either food or homes, you know, for that population. So to reduce competition, they usually move. And so I think just some of that movement, and that could still be some movement, you know, for any of these hosts that host the ticks. So, but certainly, uh, perhaps with the deer, then they can move a little further depending on what deer movement is like in that area, but certainly sure. little rodents and such. Sometimes people think about, wow, you know, that distance, probably birds, maybe through migration, you know, they would be spreading. And that's definitely uh, possible. But, um, but then we have to think about when birds would pick up ticks and when they would actually be dispersing. You know, is it, would they actually be spreading them in their breeding period uh, um, when the fledglings are moving? Or is it in the fall when they are migrating and spring when they're migrating? In this case, the spring for moving northwards. But then we need to talk to the ornithologist more to see how much of that um, migration uh, bringing ticks somewhere, like, for instance, the southern U.S., you know, or southwest Michigan, what would be more likely for them to be spreading ticks gradually up the coast? In some ways, I think if birds were more involved, they actually would, it may look more like a, uh, I don't know, not, not shotgun, certainly, because birds, uh, they will migrate in certain areas to like riverine ways or you know other they'll have preferred places to go but if they were actually spreading ticks a lot more we may see little i would think like bullseyes or little bombs maybe in different areas and maybe more patchy in how they disperse the ticks as opposed to this gradual continuous movement sure. off the lake shore but having said that i bet there could be certainly little areas that are receiving ticks from birds that might be a reason why we see some more of the spread of the black-legged tick, certainly in some of these other far outlying areas like the coastal coast of Lake Huron, but yet not so much in like that I-75 corridor um, from Midland up to the bridge. We don't seem to be seeing as many ticks there, although deer populations, you know, small mammal populations would be just as abundant yeah. there. So, so it isn't yeah. just the abundance of the host for the tech either. Yeah. And and the habitat, you know, so one of the reasons why we think the coast has been good is probably why uh, for the ticks as a first initial place was that perhaps they came down and around the lakeshore from Wisconsin through, took them a while to get through Chicago, you know, <laughs> and then Indiana. <laughs> but once they got here, they had these coastal forests and um, researchers have found that perhaps sandy soils might be a very good uh type of, uh, I guess, uh, substrate, you know, the earth might be, uh, it might be very good habitat there. So we've talked a little bit about Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. What are some other dangers that might ticks pose to people? So the deer tick or the black-legged tick can also transmit a disease called anaplasmosis, which has signs that are similar to Lyme disease um, in humans. And both Lyme disease and anaplasmosis can be transmitted to your 
your family dog as well as to the rest of the members of your family. And in some cases, Lyme disease can also be transmitted to your horses. The black-legged tick or deer tick can pose that danger, that additional danger to the other members of your family. We have another very rare tick that we see sometimes in Michigan called the Lone Star Tick. And a lot of times this tick is familiar to people because the adult female has this really bright iridescent white spot on her back. And it's, she's absolutely gorgeous. But unfortunately, um, Lone Star Ticks have been linked to what has been called a meat allergy. So there's a compound in the tick saliva when these ticks bite called alpha-gal that can cause a hypersensitivity reaction or an allergy in some people who are predisposed to it that causes them to have an allergic reaction to red meat. And that includes bacon for all of those who enjoy eating bacon. bacon. Anything but that. That's usually that's usually the response I get. Not the bacon. Um, so unfortunately, these people get bitten by a tick, and then hours later, after they've eaten uh, a meal that consists of some sort of red meat, they'll have this hypersensitivity reaction, and they don't know why. Um, they just wake up in the middle of the night having a severe allergic reaction, and they have to go to the hospital for this. So that's something to keep in mind. We haven't seen a lot of instances of the Lone Star Tick in Michigan, and we certainly don't think that it's firmly established in any great numbers in Michigan yet. Uh, But we do see handfuls of ticks that are submitted through the tick submission program with the state health department, um, as well as through the tick app where we get pictures of ticks sent into us. So what are some types of ways that people could prevent potential tick bites? So there are a couple of different strategies that you can use to prevent tick bites. So the very first strategy is to just prevent ticks from getting on you in the first place. So that includes when you go out into an area that could contain tick habitat, and that changes depending on the type of tick that you're talking about. We recommend that you wear a an EPA-approved uh, tick repellent. So this includes DEET, picaridin, lemon oil of eucalyptus, those type of products. We usually recommend that the active ingredient in that product is at least 20%. Um, that includes most of the, in, the mosquito repellents that you find in your local store. We also recommend that you go out in long sleeves and long pants. Now, with the type of weather that we see in Michigan in July and August, that could be really difficult. But we recommend that you tuck your pants into your socks and wear uh, tall boots if you can. In addition, there's a product called permethrin that is not to be used on your skin like DEET or picaridin, but can be used to treat your clothing. And this will actually kill and repel ticks that get onto your clothing as you're walking through um, tick habitat. Those strategies will help you to repel any ticks that get on you while you're out in tick habitat. We also recommend that while you're in tick habitat, stay on groomed trails. Once you've gone out into the forest, you've come home, and you've done everything that you could to prevent getting ticks on yourself. We recommend that you take a shower within two hours of of coming home. Um, Not that you're necessarily going to wash the ticks off, but this will give you an opportunity to do a really thorough tick check on any parts of your body that are protected, they're nice and, and humid, and you're not going to just brush them off. So we're thinking behind your knees, in the groin area, along the waistband, in your armpits, around Uh, the bra strap area for women, 
um, and then behind your ears and up into your hair. So, Megan, uh, when you let's say uh, one of our listeners finds a tick, then I mean, is there is there a correct way that you can remove those ticks? So, because there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet, um, some of which looks pretty sketchy. I know that there's a lot of advice out there that you should cover it with Vaseline or you should burn it off or you should use alcohol on it to suffocate the tick. Don't do any of that. Um, because there is a threshold of time during which transmission of certain pathogens can happen, you really want to get the ticks off as fast as you possibly can and let them blood feed for as little time as possible. So we recommend that you take uh, tweezers. This the pointier the tweezers, the better. So we do recommend that you go to the hardware store and get some fine tip tweezers. They're pretty easy to find. Um, and you want to grasp the tick as close to the skin as possible. You don't want to squeeze the tick in the middle of the body because then you're squeezing tick guts into your cut. So you want to grasp it as close to the skin as possible. If you get a little, a little of your skin along with the tick, you're just doing a really thorough job. So you want to grasp that tick and pull straight up and out. Um, it might take a little bit of force to get the tick out because they do cement themselves into your body. Um, but you just just pull that sucker out. You don't have to twist. You don't have to do anything fancy. Just pull it out. Um, and then we recommend that you save your tick. So don't flush it down the toilet. Don't squish it and put it in the garbage. We recommend that you put it in a Ziploc bag with a moist paper towel or cotton ball. Um, and you can put that in your refrigerator. That way, if you do become sick within, say, a month's time. You can take that tick to your doctor and that will give them a little bit more of an idea of what illnesses they may be dealing with since not all ticks transmit the same pathogens. We also recommend that you take a photo of it and send it either to the tick app or to the, to the Michigan State Health Department's photo submission. Um, and then you can also submit your actual tick, if it's still alive, to the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, where they have a, a tick identification and testing program. What about ticks getting on your pets? Are there any uh, prevention protocols or anything you can do to help keep your pet safe from ticks? Oh, absolutely. And that's really important because also pets can present a risk to the family um, for ticks. Yeah. So I always recommend that you contact your veterinarian um, and get a good tick prevention product from them. There are a lot of different products on the market that will also work against fleas as well, and nobody wants those in their house. So um, we've been hearing a lot about this new tick app. Dr. Porter, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what it is and what do you hope to learn from it? Absolutely. So the tick app is a mobile health application or app that was designed by researchers at Michigan State University, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Columbia University to identify the behaviors that bring people in contact with ticks. Because we talked earlier that the, the main way that we have to prevent tick-borne diseases is by just not contacting ticks in the first place. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of research, uh, especially in the Midwest, to tell us where people are contacting their ticks. So the point of the tick app was to ask people where are they contacting ticks and what are they doing in their everyday lives when they're contacting these ticks to help us identify and narrow down our prevention messages so that we can really target those behaviors and help people to do the best job to avoid ticks in the first place and then to prevent 
uh, ever developing a tick-borne disease. So how can people uh, participate or submit their tick data uh, to the app? The tick app is available through the Apple App Store as well as through Android app stores as well. And then there's also a website where they can go and find places where they can download the app as well. Okay, great. And uh, we'll be sure to include uh, links in our show notes for folks so they can find it pretty easily. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, We really appreciate it. So thank you, Dr. Ryan, Dr. Tsao, and Dr. Porter. Michigan.gov slash DNR Trails is your destination for trail maps, trail etiquette, and trail closure information. Trail information for biking, cross-country skiing, horseback riding, hiking, off-road vehicle riding, snowmobiling, snowshoeing, and even water trails for kayaking and canoeing are available. While you're there, remember to check out information about pet-friendly recreation, track chairs, and the Iron Bell Trail. All available at Michigan.gov slash DNR trails. Now is your opportunity to win a Wild Talk Podcast camp mug. As a thank you to our listeners, we'll be giving away a mug or two every episode. Our May mug winners are Richard Schultz, and Madeline Smeltzer. Congratulations, Richard and Madeline. Check your email as we'll be getting in touch with you soon. They answered the question, what is a group of turkeys called? They are called a rafter. Now, to be entered into the drawing this month, test your wildlife knowledge and answer our wildlife quiz question. This month's question is, what Michigan bird species has an upside down brain? All right, after you've thought about that, email your name and answer to us at dnr-wildlife-at-michigan.gov to be answered for a chance to win a mug. Be sure to include the subject line as Mug Me, and be sure to submit your answer by June 15th. Good luck, everyone. Michigan conservation officers are working hard to protect and keep the outdoors safe for current and future generations. If you witness a natural resources violation, you can call or text the Report All Poaching hotline 24 hours a day at 1-800-292-7800 or fill out the complaint form available at michigan.gov slash rap. If you would like more information on becoming a conservation officer, click on Become a CO at michigan.gov slash conservation officers. Well, thanks for joining us. Remember, if you have any questions about wildlife or hunting, you can call 517-284-WILD or email dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov. This has been the Wild Talk Podcast, your monthly podcast airing the first of each month and offering insights into the world of wildlife across the state of Michigan. You can reach the Wildlife Division at 517-284-9453 or dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov.